right, welcome to Training Data from Cosmic Works, arguably the world's richest and most compelling data science podcast. In uh, for our usual host, Ryan Lewis, today, I'm Nick Weir, a data scientist at Cosmic, and today's episode is the third and final part of the three-part series with some of the great minds from Azavia, a certified B Corporation out of Philly focused on using geospatial tech and open source software to solve difficult problems across a variety of domains. In the studio today with me is Rob Emanuel, the VP of Research at Azavia. How's it going, Rob? Pretty great. How you doing? Great. And also uh, here from Azavia, we have Joe Morrison. I don't actually even know what your title is. What is your title? I change, I change it depending on the audience, to be okay. honest. Okay. All right. But I'm just a sales guy. Okay. Joe, the sales guy. And then we've also got Jake Shermeyer, research scientist at Cosmic Works. How's it going? Hey, good to be back. Last but not least. That's right. Debatable. <laughs> so today, uh, we're going to be talking about some recent work that Azavia has done to explore how to integrate some of the, the unique things that you get from uh, geospatial data sets, uh, such as multispectral imagery, elevation information, some, some other features that you don't get out of your classic images into computer vision models. Um, so first, let's start out with the basics. Jake, uh, I know in your past life as a geographer at USGS, you spent a ton of time looking at all kinds of imagery, uh, including multispectral. So uh, given that we're going to be talking about adding things like multispectral bands into models, can you tell us what multispectral is and what it gets used for? Yeah, sure. Um, so just kind of a history lesson on satellites. Um, so some of the first Earth observation satellites were launched really in the late 70s. Um, so one in particular that I find interesting is called AVHRR, which stands for Advanced Very High Resolution Radiometer. Um, so could you guys guess what the uh, resolution is on that, the spatial resolution? It was 1.1 kilometer. Uh, so at the time, that was considered advanced. Uh, Landsat 1 had also been launched, and that was around 90 meters. But when you don't really have this uh, ultra-high spatial resolution, you need to kind of make up for that in, in some way. And that's where multispectral comes in. So you can have uh, augment your, your, your feature space, so have more in information about the uh, things you're trying to detect um, by adding multispectral layers. So different types of layers here. We're talking about uh, visible spectrum, so what our eyes can see, uh, out to the near-infrared. And then you could go further out into shortwave infrared, or you could go finer into the ultraviolet. Um, so most of the present sensors today operate kind of in the, the visible to near infrared uh, with a select few. So Landsat, Sentinel uh, operating with the, in the SWEAR resolutions. And so what can you, what additional things can you get from multispectral? What do people tend to use? Yeah, so I think uh, one of the main applications, at least to start, has certainly been land use classification, uh, just being able to discriminate uh, between different types of, of land cover types, uh, that, that really is a, a helpful application for, for multispectral. Um, if you think back on kind of the early machine learning techniques as well, uh, these were often, you would just drill down through each pixel. You wouldn't account for the neighboring pixels. Uh, so therefore, that, that, that really helps you with multispectral. I'm able to discern uh, that this is forest versus this is agriculture because I have so many different channels with a bunch of different uh, features in them, and then use that to be able to discriminate between the uh, land cover classes. Cool. Yeah, really interesting. So multispectral, you've also got things like elevation layers that um, you can get from some sensors. Uh, and so 
the the problem here, of course, is that most computer vision models were initially generated for things like natural scene photographs or what what we would see uh, from a photo we'd take on our, our smartphone um, for detecting dogs, cats, whatever small animal pet uh, you're interested in. Right. And so, um, Rob, uh, your team recently did some work to try to explore how to integrate some of this uh, geospatial specific data into a deep learning model or a, a computer vision model. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, we have, uh, we've been working with um, remote sensing imagery for a while. And, uh, you know, I, I think, um, you know, the, the efficacy of things like uh, NDVI and NDWI for detecting things like vegetation and water uh, really, you know, showcase the, um, the way that the near infrared can, can bring out um, different land, land use uh, classes, like you were saying. Um, however, if you're starting to train a, um, a computer vision model uh, and you don't have a very large data set or a large amount of time that you want to train the model, um, what you would want to do is use pre-trained models, uh, something like ImageNet, which is trained over millions of images for various, you know, uh, classific uh, for a classification tasks that has many different classes. That neural network has now learned, um, you know, so many different features of imagery that are sort of like pre-baked. So usually with a neural network, if you're going to start from scratch, you start from like zero weights or random, randomly initialized weights uh, inside the model. Um, however, if you start bootstrapped with uh, a network that can already do things like detect edges or, you know, detect, uh, you know, circles, right? Uh, uh, you can imagine like a crop circle kind of looks like a cat's eye. It's a weird example. Um, so you cut... <laughs> so you kind of start from a from a baseline of like already being able to see some things in the imagery. Um, then you can kind of get a head start on your training, and then uh, do something uh, where you're fine tuning the model to the specific task that you're that you're after. So you might have uh, remote sensing imagery that has uh, multiple you know multiple bands that you want to take advantage of, but these pre-trained models are out there uh, uh, that are you know already went through expensive training that can help you bootstrapped. And if you don't have the time and the, or the data set uh, size to like kind of get to where ImageNet is um, from, from scratch, you start with ImageNet. And, uh, but that presents a problem because that's trained on three channels. So you know, how does the network take into account the multispectral uh, imagery? And uh, you know, without certain techniques, you really can't. So what you do is you just say, OK, that's great that you have more information in those bands, but we're not going to take advantage of them. We're just going to use um, RGB. Uh, so in a uh, in our, the first uh, competition, you know, data set that uh, Xavier participated in, um, which was uh, semantic segmentation over Potsdam, Germany, which was a land use land cover classification, uh, we did try training a model um, from scratch, a fully connected neural network that um, you know did the semantic segmentation, uh, and then we also tried RGB. Uh, bootstrapped from from ImageNet, and then we also tried um, IRRG, so just actually taking the infrared, the red, the green, and then feeding that three-channel image through the network that was, um, you know, loaded with the weights of ImageNet, and the IRRG uh, model ended up being the best the best fit. So, um, yeah, you know, what happens is you you sort of you know a lot of people just disregard those those extra bands because they're hard to take advantage of. 
Yeah, and that's certainly something that we have seen in the SpaceNet challenges that we've run in the past. We free we will I think in every challenge so far we've released multispectral bands as well. Um, and we rarely see uh, participants in the challenges uh, taking taking advantage of them in the models, even though this would, if you're going from a three-band image to an eight-band image with a full multispectral collect from one of the Worldview satellites, you're, you're more than doubling the uh, amount of information that you're, you're passing to the model. It's interesting that the, uh, uh, going into the weeds a little bit here, that the IRRG model using pre-trained weights mm-hmm. was uh, worked well. Yeah. Um, any, any thoughts <laughs> on that? I don't know if I have insights of... on why, yeah. um, but uh, that's, you know, that's, that's what we found. Uh, it beat it out every time, the RGB, the RGB okay. model. So I think, I think it, it really is just like those sets of initialized weights that you're using, you're not using sort of the higher level functions of it to be able to like detect, you know, colors, but it's really just those, the, the time it takes to train a model to from zero to recognize like shapes and be able to kind of create those baseline features is just, it takes a long time. So unless you're willing to train on a large enough data set with enough varied shapes and, you know, everything. So, but also that infrared, one of the, one of the, um, actually two of the classes, it was low vegetation and uh, trees. So because uh, infrared picks up uh, vegetation so well, I think it just gave a stronger signal to be able to associate with that class, um, you know, which uh, apparently the, uh, the blue uh, channel was not, you know, not as competitive. So, so it ended up uh, working better. Yeah, and I think uh, the blue channel in general is just probably the least valuable channel uh, in uh, sure. multispectral. Uh, imagery Sorry, because blue. it gets uh, it gets washed out by uh, the atmosphere mostly, and um, it's it's also you know it's just where it is in the EM spectrum. It's more similar to the the red and green channel. So I think near infrared is probably going to add. Blue is the weakest color. Blue is the weakest color. Yes. I, the one thing that you pointed out, just for some broader context too, that I think is a misconception about this work in machine learning generally, is that you know Moore's law has made computation and storage much cheaper over time, it's still pretty expensive to be able to do real cutting edge machine learning work. And so unless you have the resources of a Google or an Apple or an open AI, uh, and literally you're spending millions of dollars a year on computation, then you're not going to be able to get to the state of the art results. That's why these pre-trained models are so exciting for smaller companies like ours. And so if we cannot find a way to get competitive results with off-the-shelf pre-trained models, we're never going to be able to put those things into practice for every new project that we do. So I, I think people think, oh, yeah, it's like over time it gets really cheap to be able to train these things. Like, no, for people actually doing the work like us, we're, and, and the blog post you referenced, we're trying to find ways to adapt these highly expensive pre-trained models to be able to, take on more information or adapt their architecture so that we can take advantage of all the information we're being provided in multispectral imagery. We are not investing in, you know, our own cabinet of GPUs at the office to train them. Although I think some people do take that approach. They're just kind of two different ways to tackle the same problem of like your resource constrained, your time constrained, but you still want to be able to do cutting edge work. 
Yeah, that's a super interesting point. And, and it's something that I want to put a pin in and come right back to in just a moment. But first, we'll just take a quick commercial break. Cosmic Works and the SpaceNet partners are going to be at ICCB in Korea at the end of October. Jake, what are you looking forward to the most about Seoul? Uh, suppose uh, the conference. I, I haven't really thought about this. Apparently what about Korean barbecue? I, I am very interested in Korean barbecue. I live in Annandale, which is uh, arguably the, the Korean barbecue capital of Northern Virginia, so I feel like I've had good experiences <laughs> okay. there. So you'll uh, have a good point of comparison. Yes, yes. Uh, beyond that, I've heard there's a great military museum there. Um, some other good stuff to, to check out. So we'll, we'll see. Cool. And so, and what are we going to be doing at this ICCB conference, which is the International Conference in Computer Vision? Uh, so we had a, uh, a paper accepted in the ICCV, which was uh, a paper around SpaceNet 4 and the Atlanta data set, so we had 27 different look angles over Atlanta, um, and we released a paper regarding the data sets and the baselines we created. Nick was the lead author, we uh, collaborated almost with the Intel AI lab, uh, so we're really excited, we'll have a poster there, we can talk to everyone. Uh, is there anything else I'm missing? No, I think you've got it. Thanks a lot. And uh, for listeners who aren't going to be at the conference, if you're interested in that paper, you can find it on Archive. Just search for SpaceNet MVOI. All right, back to the show. Cool. So uh, something you just mentioned, Joe, was that it can be incredibly expensive to train a model um, from scratch, of course, and that you might need an enormous amount of computing resources to do all of the training and fine tuning down to the absolute uh, the, the absolute best model on a specific training data set. But there are a couple of different things that I think are, are interesting around that. One is, it's actually something, and Jake can probably speak to this um, uh, more than me, but something that we've explored a little bit, we actually don't see a huge difference in performance on, on overhead imagery data when we're working with a model that was pre-trained on ImageNet and then we um, essentially retrain to now work on geospatial data versus something that we're just training from scratch for an equivalent amount of time, say hmm. a couple days on a couple of GPUs. Hmm. Um, is that consistent with your experience, Jake? Yeah, I think so. I mean, a lot of the features in overhead imagery, particularly uh, remote sensing imagery, so where you have a spatial resolution less than 30 centimeters, the, the features can be quite different than what we're accustomed to seeing in uh, natural scene photos. So really the, the ultra high res, you know, traditional photographs that you're, you're seeing in these, these image net data sets. Um, so I, I think that that plays a role. Um, and uh, I, know, I know there was a recent paper in CVPR that kind of stated similar findings that really the pre-trained weights, if you're transitioning to a domain that's significantly different may not really be all that valuable. That said, I think it's probably worth trying because uh, you know the, the computational overhead is, is so much more significant if you have to initialize from random or zero weights. Yeah, absolutely. And it should also be stated that SpaceNet Challenge participants almost always start from image net weights as well. And yet, huh. um, and, but yet when we take their models and then retrain from scratch versus with the image net weights, we don't necessarily see a huge difference in performance. And that's on a that's on a single contest data set? That's right. Yeah. Okay. And then you said for like three, like how, what's the resources put into it? In yeah, we're time? training for, I mean, I don't know, something like two days on uh, two Titan XP GPUs, for example. Interesting. I think that might be, um, you know, we end up, we usually train a lot 
shorter than that. Yeah. Uh, and on, you know, on something like SpaceNet, there is a lot of imagery to, to mm -hmm. train on. So in um, use cases where we have, you know, clients that want to find things in their imagery and they might only have like a thousand, two thousand examples, right, in um, not too, too many images. You know, it gets it gets to the point where like fine tuning is possible, uh, but starting from scratch is just like not going to happen. Um, so I would say, we, yeah, we end up training, you know, we see, and we've done some tests uh, on this to see that the, um, the efficacy of the model, like the performance metrics, spike a lot faster. And in, in certain situations, we see that it does plateau at a higher accuracy level than, than other, um, you know, uh, initial, random initialization, which would, um, you know, train towards that same performance level, but take longer to get there and then peak off. But that, yeah, then again, like, you know, spending, spending, uh, you know, a couple days um, on a GPU on a larger data set is like not usually the situation we find ourselves in. So I think it's just, you know, different situations have different, different uh, techniques. I'm, yeah, I'm curious as well. I mean, one of the things that I see the R&D team at Azavia doing a lot is kind of throwing stuff at the wall. So you might have, I mean, one of the challenges of deep learning is that there are so many parameters to, to play with. And so we might say, all right, we're going to go with like the stock hyperparameters, the stock. All. We're going to pick these 10 variables and we're going to isolate for those 10 variables and we're going to train different models, which each of those things isolated. And then if there's like some that show big signal, maybe we combine the best and do that again. If we had to wait two days for each one of those things to complete, um, especially if you've got two GPUs so that you're constrained in the throughput, um, we wouldn't be able to run through those experiments as quickly. So I'm curious, I mean, from, from your standpoint, is, is it a problem for you when you have to wait that, that like interim time for those things to train? Or is that, is that a di kind of different challenge that you're not necessarily faced with? Yeah, that's a good point. And it's, um, I, I think in terms of the two-day time frame, we're probably doing most of our hyperparameter tuning on on some shorter training experiments, and but um, which won't allow us to see the higher plateau that you might uh, be able to get, for example. But we'll try to do all the tuning um, on some much shorter experiments, and then once we feel like we've nailed down hyperparameters, we'll kind of do the full the full training process. Um, so that doesn't really limit. Our, our research pipeline, but we're also, as you mentioned, working with the, the pretty large SpaceNet data sets. Our training um, tends to be more on the SpaceNet scale where we tend to give participants up to a week to train their models that they're uh, giving us for the challenges. Um, so, I think, yeah. I think we can learn from you because if you, if you think about what you're describing, you're thinking about a mature machine learning project so we're often at this nascent phase where we're kind of like pr trying to reduce the risk of doing machine learning projects and therefore we're not doing the optimal thing, we're doing the minimum thing. But I can imagine as some of our projects mature in like a year from now, two, three years from now, when we have a SpaceNet size data set we've been able to aggregate over that time, we're gonna probably wanna change the way that we're working. So it's cool to hear you describe how you approach the problem because maybe that'll look more like how some of our team members are approaching it in the future when we've got these, you know, what we would consider luxurious data sets to work with. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Definitely. Um, and I'm curious. So you've talked about 
ImageNet pre-trained models. Do you guys do any work with any models that were pre-trained on geospatial data, on overhead imagery, anything like that? Um, we have some models that were uh, fine-tuned on more specific like geospatial uh, data sets, and then we reuse that. Sure. Uh, for other applications that are similar, like um, you know the uh, cars overhead with context uh, data set uh, over Potsdam, we trained uh, object detection model, which uh, proves useful for doing other types of um, you know vehicular like detection in overhead imagery in in higher resolution like uh, aerial imagery. So that's that's really the only uh, example. I know that there's. Um, yeah, I'm curious about your perspective on like, are are there any uh, pre-trained models uh, on SpaceNet or otherwise that have been released that people have been using uh, effectively on on uh, multispectral? Yeah, so um, yeah, kind of a sidebar here, but uh, I, I used the Calci data set and actually uh, SpaceNet pre-trained model. So uh, it was trained to detect buildings, and then we just did some retraining, and then it can suddenly detect cars. So we're, although we're doing segmentation uh, with a little GIS post-processing, you can uh, kind of create some bounding boxes around them and have a, a, a quasi-detection network, uh, even though it's semantic segmentation. Where can listeners read about that? Uh, you can read about that on the downlink. That's one of our, I don't know, 500 blogs, but uh, <laughs> one of the more recent ones. Great. Yeah. And um, in terms of including multispectral data, that's a great question. So from the SpaceNet challenges, um, there aren't a ton of pre-trained weights out there. That's something that we've started releasing um, just in the past couple months um, with the, the Solaris code base. We've retrained some of the, the participants' uh, models using as, as similar parameters as we can to what they used and then uh, and, and put those weights up in the SpaceNet dataset bucket on AWS S3 for, uh, for free download. Um, now, are those, uh, you know, because the nice thing about ImageNet is it's been trained on basically every type of backbone network, you know, ResNet 16, or ResNet, right. like, it's sort of like widely available uh, for whatever model or framework that you're using. Is there, is there like kind of a specific architecture that you've released or is there plans to sort of do that similar type of um, pre-trained on various backbone networks that can be loaded in? So at this point, uh, there are just four different backbone architectures. They're all they're all UNETs with different encoders. So ResNet 34, DenseNet 121, DenseNet 161, and the BGG 16 uh, encoder. So and um, there's some some work in uh, in our blog, the downlink on how to uh, do some very quick fine tuning. We were actually very pleasantly surprised you could fine tune uh, for three epochs of training, five minutes on uh, uh, the smallest AWS um, GPU instance and take a model that identifies buildings in Atlanta and suddenly now it works uh, at SpaceNet Challenge winning uh, quality in Khartoum. Wow. Um, so we're hopeful that these kinds of pre-trained models for geospatial will, will then um, provide some value. But it, yeah, and yeah, absolutely doing some quick training from image net weights makes a lot of sense um, to try to accelerate your pipeline and hopefully having uh, people take these weights and work with them, whether it's within the Solaris framework or not, uh, will make it um, even faster for people to explore things like this. Uh, it, I mean, it makes intuitive sense that 
something trained on satellite imagery that's then used, transferred to another task on satellite imagery that takes advantage of the full spectrum of the image as opposed to just a piece of it uh, would be much more effective out of the gate. Um, that's been a dream of ours to see that come to fruition for a long time, or I wouldn't even call it a dream. It's just sort of a given that someone's going to do that at some point, and it really hasn't happened as quickly as we thought. So yeah, if you're listening to this podcast and you're bored at Microsoft and you've got you know, a bunch of resources available to you or you're at Google or Apple and you have a 10% time project you want to work on, you could do the world a service by releasing uh, that type of a project. We would all uh, be the first in line to take advantage of it. Jake, have we done any work with um, comparing the performance models trained on just your classic RGB versus the full eight-band multispectral? Because the models that I was just describing, I should say, the pre-trained weights are either on RGB or RGB with just a near IR pan sharpened band added in. Uh, yeah, so this research is a little dated, um, but I think Adam led this, Adam Finnett and our colleague, led this uh, a year or so ago um, where he investigated if... Um, just what Nick described. So does RGB help or does the eight-channel multispectral help from, from the Worldview 3 satellite when you're doing building segmentation? Um, and his findings were really that the multispectral wasn't that valuable for this application. Um, that's not to say that it's not valuable. Um, it's just I, I think that when you're working with uh, this specific type of multispectral, so we're, we're just going from the, the visible to the the near-infrared in eight channels, there's really a lot of overlap in, in those bands. Uh, a lot of the channels are really similar to one another, so you're not getting all that much more information. So when you're using deep learning to, to segment out uh, buildings, you're really just looking for kind of shapes and textures and corners, specific patterns, um, and you know, you're, you're additionally not gonna look for uh, things like vegetation, where near-infrared might be helpful. I think that uh, the multispectral may have limited usage, um, and uh, that, that's kind of what his, his results showed from one of those blogs. I love that I love that you said this research might be dated. It's you know a, a year old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it might be more like two years old. It's the computer vision community yeah, at right. this point. I feel like. Yes. Yeah, we were we were uh, actually testing building uh, segmentation on SpaceNet Vegas uh, with the um, uh, multispectral approach. And um, I don't want to be speaking speaking either because I, I think, yeah, I think it was RGB. Yes, it was RGB against uh, you know full eight band with the ImageNet pre-trained. And and given we didn't like try to optimize each of the models, but we were seeing maybe like a you know 0.02 F1 score increase, so not not significant. In roads, we didn't see anything. Um, but then, yeah, for uh, for other applications where it is vegetation or, or water, uh, we are seeing a, a lot of difference. So I think it really varies between, you know, what you're detecting and, and what sort of, you know, uh, there was another um, uh, set of research that uh, James McLean did around uh, mutual information, uh, detecting the mutual information between pixels and how much more information are these, um, you know, did it, does it really contain? And we were, we were sort of convinced that, yeah, th there's, there's definite new information being, you, you can't predict uh, certain band information from, from just a subset of the others. So um, yeah, it's interesting to hear that there was not really a significant increase in buildings because we th thought we had identified that as a potential. Um, but what you said kind of intuitively makes sense of like, yeah, it's more about the shapes and, and uh, 
you know, detecting the, the outlines. That's, that's one of the big fears we have when we're investing in research like this is that, and you see this in the competitions too, is that, you know, in the first week we can get to within, you know, 0.1 of the leading candidate. And then we might spend three months to, to make up a few tenths of a, a point on the evaluation. It's just like diminishing returns in deep learning are everywhere. So, uh, there's some piece of me that thinks, oh, yeah, the multispectral stuff, it's so intuitive that if you have way more information, you should be able to extract way more. But it may just be another subset of or a special case of the idea of diminishing returns and, and doing a bunch of manual extra work to, to try to tweak these pretty good off-the-shelf models. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so I think one more question that I'll open up to the three of you guys before we close out. What about potential drawbacks for using these pre-trained models? Are, are there any? I can't think of anything off the top of my head, really, so I'm not necessarily expecting uh, expecting anything. But can you guys think of any issues with using these pre-trained models for geospatial? The uh, only fear that I would have is just a little bit of... Um you know, an assumption about what works. Like you kind of, you kind of see something that improved a model performance at some time. And then you just kind of keep going forward with that, um, you know, expectation of like, okay, I always need to do this in order for this to be effective. So, you know, when you had mentioned, actually we didn't see any difference between pre-trained and non, uh, non pre-trained. That's like, Oh, that's, that's an assumption that we've kind of established internally that we need to check. Um, so I think the danger is to kind of say, okay, we always need to do this. We can't, um, actually, you know, uh, work with an architecture that the pre-trained model won't fit into because we need the pre-trained model because sort of, you know, a, a supposed reliance on it, uh, which may or may not be, um, uh, give you a more effective outcome. Yeah. The fear that I have, I almost don't want to say, but the fear that I have is that everything we're doing is technically illegal in a case that hasn't been settled yet. Because the licenses to the images in ImageNet are not owned by the people that build those pre-trained models. Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, I mean, let's be honest though. You're that's produce, a great point. Yeah, every is. single company that's doing computer vision work is using models pre-trained on ImageNet, and that that data set may, in a court decision in the future, they they may say, look, you don't have the right to use this in a commercial or even like in a research, research setting. That's one thing I worry about. The other thing I worry about is that we get really close to having super clean, legally speaking, data sets that we can start from, like SpaceNet, but then they're not licensed liberally enough that you can use them in a commercial setting. And therefore, if you're being really rigid about it, you, you can't make that final step to applying it. And so it doesn't stop the research community or the commercial community from building stuff and trying stuff. And I'm sure that will all get figured out in some way or another. Some hero will come in and provide the image net replacement that's just as large, that's totally legally clean. But it does, it does kind of amaze me how, um, I guess, cavalier the deep learning community is both around ethics and around the um, intellectual property of what's happening. People like Google have like patented autoencoders and crazy stuff like that. I think because they want to prevent patent trolls from stepping in. But I, I do wonder if we're living in this kind of wild west time where there's a bunch of innovation. And then eventually once this stuff just becomes mundane tools that people are using, uh, it's going to get really constricted and there's going to be a lot of um, uh, legal quandaries that people wind up in. 
Is that yeah. another Joe Morrison three-year prediction? Uh, no, that's like a that's like a a thirty-year prediction. Like if we get to the point where people care enough to sue and take stuff to court, that's a great sign. That means that that means that it's been really adopted, and someone's like, "Oh, I see an angle here." Because um, you know, if you're if you look at what's in ImageNet, it's like pictures of people's backyards and of street scenes and it would take a real stickler to be like, Oh yeah, that crappy cell phone picture I took of my cat should not have been used as one of a million other examples in a model that was released. It just seems unlikely to me, but, but I don't know, maybe, maybe that could happen. Yeah. And I just say, um, you know, as far as like the deep learning community, research community, like being cavalier, like, okay, we're going to just move forward with this and we're really going to, um, I'm sorry. Uh, we're we're gonna move forward with this. Uh, we're gonna use uh, ImageNet, and we're just gonna publish our papers out in the open, and we're gonna build open source software, and we're gonna release open data sets. It might be legally unsound in certain ways, uh, but I think it's actually revolutionary. Like the way Archive has just put out research in a way that you know I don't have a background in deep learning like I don't have uh, uh, advanced degree in computer science but I, I read research papers uh, and and learn so much from from op the open source community open uh, publishing community and then uh, you know SpaceNet is a great example of like okay it, there's this thing called ImageNet like it already exists out there so let's create something uh, to seed the geospatial uh, uh, machine learning space and um, you know really cultivate this open community and, and it's just uh, it's really exciting. So, uh, you know, I, I encourage that type of wild westness cause it, I'm, I flourish in it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's a great, uh, place for us to cut off. So, uh, I hope my voice, uh, as the host here has not been too sharp of a contrast from Ryan's usual dulcet tones, but let's be honest, at least you're spared from his usual pretty lame jokes. Um, <laughs> Uh, if you've made it this far, congratulations. You're now a geospatial, multispectral, deep learning expert. So thanks a lot to Rob and Joe from Azavia for joining us. Definitely check out their blog for the, the blog post that we were referring to around uh, using additional bands from geospatial data, working with pre-trained image, image net weights, and check out our blog for some of our work in, in related areas. Um, be, make sure to rate and review and subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. And thanks a lot. And we'll talk to you soon. Space Club Rule 26. Steer into the skid. Thank you for listening to today's show. If you'd like to hear more episodes or be kept up to date, when we release a new show, please make sure to subscribe to Training Data wherever you get your podcast. If you'd like to find out more information and links to the different sites and data sets and presentations and all the different content that we discussed today, you can find more at cosmicworks.org, that's cosmic with a Q, spacenet.ai, and our blog, the downlink, that's also with a Q on Medium. As you're seeing here, we like the letter Q. Music was provided by the DMV Zone, and for those of you not in the DMV, that is the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, by Redline Addiction. Uh, a big thank you to Kristen Zender and Carrie Sassine from Inkytel's Marketing Group. Also a shout-out to Hardcast Media uh, for serving as our studio. 
Thanks for listening and take care.